welcome to episode 7 of Station to Station. I'm your host, Michelle Bacon, and we'll be going behind the stages, venues, and studios of Kansas City's musical landscape, talking to the individuals who are making it happen and amplifying the important work they're doing in the music and arts world. My special guest today fronts one of Kansas City's most notable acts, who recently released its second full-length album and just this morning announced a headlining hometown show at the Uptown Theater on April 9th. Really excited to introduce you all to my next guest, Addie Sartino of the Greeting Committee. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Addie. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we kind of dive into stuff, um, I do want to mention that the Greeting Committee's sophomore album, Dandelion, is now out on Harvest Records, and you can get it wherever you stream or download music. And I know you all are still doing a vinyl pre-order as well, right? Correct. Yeah, that should be, uh, you can pre-order now and it should hopefully be shipping out top of 2022. Cool. Have you, have you had any issues with your, with the vinyl manufacturing and stuff? Yeah, that, that's why, uh, I don't know about issues, just everything is so backed up. So yeah. Everyone's had to be so patient and we appreciate the patience and obviously everyone's working as hard as they can to get, to get vinyl and merch out in general. Yeah, I've been hearing from a lot of people that it's just taking a little longer. I mean, everything's kind of backed up right now. I know that my band, we have an album coming out at the end of November and we're probably not going to get the vinyl till January or something like that. So yeah, well, that's exciting that you have an album coming out. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Congrats to you too. And, and we will be talking more about Dandelion here um, coming up, but I, I kind of want to, I, I like starting out with talking about the background um, of the artists I'm talking to, you know, kind of just what drew you to music. I, I know that you started the greeting committee back in 2014. Uh, you worked with solo artists before that, but I'm just curious what it was like growing up, how you got into music, what kind of stuff you got into. Yeah, I I would say that for me, music has always been a form of therapy, really. Just uh, gr- growing up, I I would, even though I'm a pretty social person, I would isolate in my room and and play guitar and piano and ukulele. And I don't remember a specific moment of being really drawn to music. I just knew that I always really enjoyed it. It was kind of inherent to me to say that I wanted to be a musician, even before I had any real reasoning to say that. Uh, It just felt like what I was meant to do, really. Yeah. Did you you grow up around many people who were musicians or was it just kind of like you decided you know one day that that was what you wanted to do no I didn't grow up around a lot of musicians I'm trying to think if any I mean I know that I have a grandma who uh, was a choir director and and played music but I don't think I even knew that until I was older Hmm. that 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 was something that she partook in so no I was I was really on my own I mean I know there was a moment of of wanting to do music out of spite because I played soccer and my dad is a soccer dad and would coach from the sideline and you know it was always a lecture in the car after every game and I think I think I got to a point where I was like I'm gonna do something that you know nothing about that way you can't tell me anything about it uh so I know that kind of existed somewhat uh which is funny and every once in a while he still tries to tries to chime in and I'm just like "Mm -mm, we're not doing this (laughs) even though now, as an adult, I actually seek his advice versus back when I was a teenager, I kind of ran from it. But True. yeah, that's that's sort of my history with that. That's awesome. I think I listened to an interview that you all did a few years ago, and you, you talked about how you just had this kind of inherent drive to be an artist. What What do you think? Do you know what sparked that? Was it just something that you just felt? I just really love music. I love lyrics. Um, I I really feel so much when I go to a concert I love going to shows in general but especially shows that really inspire me I think some shows sticking out to me that inspired me were uh like watching the killers perform when they came to Kansas City and then some other acts like Ingrid Michaelson played at the Uptown Theater like forever ago um and I remember just being really captivated by her as well and I saw Vampire Weekend at Starlight Theater with my stepdad growing up, and I remember, like, basically falling asleep waiting for them to come on, and then they they came on and had, like, the coolest light show and had just such an entertaining act, and Arcade Fire is another act that sticks out to me, just, just feeling really alive by music um, and then running to it in moments where I wasn't doing so well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about how the greeting committee came together. So um, you all were students at Blue Valley High School, and I, you had worked with Brandon beforehand, and so you had chose him to work with in the beginning, right? Yeah. So uh, Brandon and I were introduced. His mom and my stepmom tried to set us up. I remember my stepmom was like, he's really cute. He models, he plays guitar. And I was like, oh my God, I want to meet this guy. And I met him. And uh, obviously that didn't last very long, but the friendship did. And so he would come with uh, me to play open mic nights, at the Nelson Atkins Art Museum. And that was kind of how I got started in playing. I did a couple of those by myself, but having him by my side just made me a lot more confident. Um, and he was much more skilled of a player than I am and I was when it came to guitar and honestly everything. He's incredibly talented. And so, you know, I, I would say that I had a, a sort of false confidence that got me where I am today. Um, but even with that false confidence comes a lot of self-doubt. And I didn't feel that when it came to Brandon. I knew that I don't know what's going to happen with me, but I know that kid's going somewhere, so I want to stick with him. So it was really easy when I decided I wanted a band that that he was the person I was going to call. Mm-hmm. How long had you been writing songs before the two of you hooked up? Um, gosh, I mean, I wrote songs when I was in like fourth grade, so I was like nine or ten, and they were always really depressing. <laughs> and my parents would find them and be like, what is going on in this girl's head? But uh, I would say I seriously started writing songs probably around 13 or 14. Okay. Um, and then I just, I kept doing it. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so you and Brandon had played together for a little while and then Pierce and Austin got involved not that much longer after? Yeah, I would say probably like, I think Brandon and I knew each other probably a year or so before Pierce and Austin got involved in the project. Um, Austin is Brandon's childhood best friend, so that was an easy, easy pick for Brandon. And then Pierce was in another local band in high school called Tall Tales, and he was actually a guitarist. He's he's not a bass player. Okay. I mean, he is now, obviously, um, and a really talented one at that, but he was just someone who was a good songwriter, and that's what Brandon really wanted. He wanted to recruit all songwriters, so I'm glad he did. Yeah, so Hands Down was kind of your breakouts so to speak um i know that you had done an ep to start with and and you recorded that in peyton merrick's basement and she's your manager now is that how that went down yeah so we recorded a few songs in her parents basement and a few songs in austin's parents basement and that that's kind of how we all got connected at first peyton wanted to be a producer and then pretty quickly decided that she's a manager and Thank God she did, because she's like the best manager ever. We're very lucky to have her. Yeah. So I do want to talk about kind of that, what had happened when you broke out, because I'm sure, you know, maybe at the time you didn't expect that to happen so quickly. Um, And you ended up playing Lollapalooza, South by Southwest. You've uh, supported bands like Hippocampus, Rainbow Kitten Surprise, Jukebox the Ghost. And of course, you got signed to to Harvest Records. Um, And so like, I like to talk about sort of the career of music in this podcast quite a bit. Um, and so you spent the better part of your teens and now your early twenties being a professional musician. So I wonder how it's been to kind of just grow up navigating through that industry. It's a very atypical job and, you know, a lot of times it's not an easy industry to be a part of. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of that is starting to catch up to me now at 23 Um, I mean, it was definitely noticeable as a 15-year-old getting signed to a record label, but I think in the music industry, being that young, there's this perception that everything stops being as cool when you get older. Like, it was so cool being able to be 17 years old and say, like, I have a record deal, and now when you're 23, it's it's not that we're not grateful for it, but it is that idea of, like, you watch Billie Eilish, and she's so young and accomplishing so much, so that pressure just adds on of thinking that you're supposed to be at a certain level of success at a certain age. It, it gets scary and it really creeps up on you. And I know for me in high school, I felt like I had the world ahead of me and I had so much potential. And a lot of uh, what comes into play in Dandelion, our new record, the theme is kind of what happens when, when that feeling catches up to you and it feels like you're watching your life instead of living it. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a level of 
surrealness that comes with being an artist and having all of that hit you so young. Um, I think that I've kind of had to detach from reality at times and disassociate, which is uh, something I'm in therapy for now because it's not the healthiest way to deal with things. But it's really weird to have you know, we can go from playing a sold out uptown theater to the next day, like I'm at Walmart buying bananas, just having a a very average day to day life being very unrecognized. So it it can be difficult for the ego and just like mental health in general and kind of navigating uh, your place in the world, generally speaking. Yeah, and that's something I've talked about with a lot of artists lately because I've been doing this um, mental health series for 90.9 The Bridge called Sound Minds. And we've talked a lot about some of the unique challenges that artists have to face. And, you know, kind of what you said about playing to a sold out room at Uptown Theater and then just going back to your regular day, not being a quote unquote rock star. We talk a lot about like the glorification of excess and just that lifestyle. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a lot of disconnect in there. I think the idea of success is also so intangible. You know, it's like, I talked to a lot of artists that are like, yeah, I played a sold out show at record bar or whatever last night. And then I went to Omaha, whatever, or wherever the next evening. And I played to a room of three people. So, you know, it can be really difficult to attain whatever, whatever success means to you. So, yeah. It's a very, I mean, you bringing up like the touring aspect of how large of a gap it is. You know, when we play Kansas City, it's a very different venue size than when we play anywhere else uh, in the country. So, and that's always interesting. I think there's actually a, a very large appeal to both though. Like I know that my bandmates don't necessarily, I'm trying to think of how to word this, just there is an intimacy that gets missed in a giant venue. I think there's also a difference though, because I really you know, I'm, I'm mobile at a show. I can go into the crowd and feel that. Whereas they're kind of stuck in their spot on stage and can maybe get out there every once in a while. So I think for them playing a show is very different than for me, but yeah, the room size and the intimacy. And a lot of that also depends on the people that are in the room on whether or not they're reaching out as well and making it a, a mutual experience versus if we're just playing to a crowd that's really not interested, that can feel right. really isolating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's another part of it. You know, it's like, as an artist, a lot of what we do is tied directly to the external value. You know, it's like that whatever the crowd is giving us, that's kind of what we depend on to put on a good show. I mean, we can still put on a good show, but it doesn't feel the same if you're playing to a room full of people who are kind of just, you know, staring at their phones or whatever, you know. And and that's something I really appreciate about the greeting committee. You all are so good to your fans. You're you're very you engage your fans. Um and, and I know that like through what you've said off stage too, you make your fans feel seen and valued and important and I think that's a big part of what you all do Um, but do you like do you feel that energy when you're playing to people versus when you know you might have a night where people aren't paying as much attention or or something like that you know oh yeah I actually think there's only like I mean okay it's tricky because we've only done one headline tour we have another one coming up And so I'm really anxious to see how that goes because our first one was phenomenal. It was so exciting. It was a very different experience. Um, When you're opening up for a large act and there's all these people to impress, it's very different. And it it really is like a game, I would say, of of how can I get these people to to be captivated when, you know, there is kind of a, I don't want to say the word stigma against opening acts, but like, that's not what you came for a lot of the time. Right. Um, so part of me likes that challenge, but part of me, you know, there are nights too, where it's just like, God, this is hurting me. This is making me feel like, uh, you know, I kind of relate it to being like a zoo animal sometimes of like, or a puppet, just feeling like I'm, I'm a prop in -hmm. someone's night. And so, you know, I've been really fortunate that we haven't experienced that a ton, but when it does happen, it's, it's really heartbreaking and, Mm -hmm. and difficult to kind of pull myself out of that, um, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's like talking about or thinking about how we are so tied to what our audience 
you know, the energy of our audience and, and like just, you know, things like streaming numbers and popularity image, it, it's a lot of pressure. And, you know, if you're already having, if you're already going through a tough time, have other things in your life. And, you know, like I, I didn't really start playing music and touring until I was in my mid twenties. So mm-hmm. I, I think I was at a different place of my, in my life, but I can't imagine, you know, for myself, I dealt with a ton of self-esteem issues when I was a teenager. So I, I can't imagine like touring, you know, being on the road night after night and interacting with all of these different kinds of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Like bringing up self-esteem as well. Like because I, I think I'm actually going through the opposite of as a teenager, I think I had great self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that was just like a bit of arrogance. And I think now at 23, it's it's kind of like crippling. And maybe that is because of numbers and, you know, yes, social media existed for sure when I was in high school, but it's really way more relevant now. And I think people don't realize how big of a disconnect there is as well to numbers. Like, we our monthly listeners right now are around 800,000 which is insane and you i think that if i saw an artist with those numbers i would think they were doing very different rooms than what we're doing and also feeling very differently than what i'm feeling today mm-hmm. it's it's very cool it's something we celebrate you know every day in our group message there's an update if it's going well and everyone gets to be excited about it but then you know that's so fleeting cuz 20 minutes later i'm just you know i might just be sitting there watching tv or or being happy because I'm taking my dog on a walk. That's what is filling me up and learning to have those other things fill you up as opposed to the numbers. Cause they're just so misleading. I mean, I know ahead of touring with jukebox, the ghost, because they really got their um, fan base before like the height, the height of social media, their numbers looked very different. I remember ahead of that show being like, I don't know what this is going to look like. They had packed rooms every single night despite their numbers looking different than than what I had expected. I remember being kind of like, ah. Oh. And then you go there and it's like the best show ever and their fans are so engaged and they're so kind and giving. Like it it couldn't have gone better. And here I was sitting there judging because in my world, numbers are kind of everything for, for being an act right now. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's where a lot of that disconnect comes in and not just with numbers purely, but just the idea that other people have about what an artist is, what makes an artist mm-hmm. successful. Um, and I had another thought and I totally lost it. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me so much. You're oh, good. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is something that I've talked a lot to artists about as well. It's just like establishing your value as an artist. And of course, you know, you, you all have had quite a bit of success relative to a lot of other artists from Kansas City. So it's, you've had a bit of a different trajectory but um you know going back to the whole idea of like glorifying being a rock star when your life is you know that's not what your life is generally Mm -hmm. if you're on tour it's kind of different but the rest of the time you know you're doing the work Um, yeah it's not just being out there on stage like being out there on stage is a very small amount of the work honestly yeah I yeah that's something that is very true I I, most of what I do revolves around everything but my stage performance which is so bizarre it's like you don't know that when you say you want to be a musician what that really means is you're going to be a business person an accountant a tour manager uh uh, this or that you know and thankfully we have a crew and and that's something we're I think that's something I'm actually in this moment realizing like the greatest gift we get from having a record deal is actually probably the ability to have a crew around us. And we don't even have a big crew. It's, you know, we have a, an attorney, a business manager, an agent and, and Peyton and you know what Peyton's team comes with, but like we, we have a lot of help if we, if we want it and if we need it. And that's something that I would say I take that for granted the most actually. And it's all coming to me right now that that's <laughs> where, that's where we're really lucky. Cause I think people think when you have a record deal, at least I thought this, when we got a record deal, I thought that meant, oh, I'm going to be famous. Like, oh, I'm going to be on the radio. I'm going to be doing this and that. And it's like, the record deal just, honestly, it's like financial help more than anything. And there are things that come with like, there's, there's some clout that comes with being able to say you have a record deal. But I remember being really heavily bashed by 
certain people in the Kansas City artist community because they thought that we didn't deserve it. And it, and I totally get that we skipped a lot of steps in the beginning. We we really did, and we're so lucky for that. Um, but there's also so much that comes after the record deal. That's really where we had to start putting so much work in, where we did skip some steps, but they caught up to us for sure. Right. You know, if you weren't putting the work in, then there wouldn't be any of the output that you've had since then you know it's like you wouldn't be getting ready to do another headlining tour either so mm-hmm. I, I think that it can be a lot of people even on the musician side it can be a very myopic view of what's actually happening um, yeah and I'm curious like what what your expectations were I guess going into it to begin with um, did you did you have any expectations yeah I'm a uh... I have high expectations for everything, and that's that's kind of a, a great thing about me, and I think my work ethic, but it also can lead to a lot of disappointment, and I've had to adjust, for sure. Um, I'm really grateful I grew up with a dad who had very high expectations of me and continues to have high expectations of me because it allowed me to to see worth in myself and also to just to shoot for the stars and my dad always says, shoot as high as you can, because even if you don't land there, you're going to land higher than you thought you would. Mm. Um, but I think I ha- always had that atten- intention, even at 15. I remember driving past the Midland, and just, again, it's that kind of ignorance of when you're a teenager, and a teenager with decent self-esteem, I was like, I'm going to get a record deal. And then a year or two later, I did. And it's like, who does that happen to? That's crazy. And I don't think it was just because I said it, but I think it was because of that sort of false confidence that I worked really hard for that. I, I researched a lot. I did a lot of, you know, I asked a lot of questions at times when people wouldn't ask a lot of questions. I, I just tried constantly to put myself in positions that would allow for life to line up for me like that. Um, I don't think my bandmates had that intention though. I think Brandon knew that he wanted to do music for his life but Austin and Pierce Pierce was like all set to go to to go to KU for engineering like that wasn't the life that he planned for himself and it's actually a theme that comes up now um we're all in band therapy together to try to improve and maintain our relationships with one another and that's something that does come up is is kind of that idea of like you're he's so grateful for all of this but to kind of realign with what you thought your entire childhood, that your adulthood would look like, and then for it to not look like that. Your first headlining tour was for This Is It? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, so did you have another tour plan before COVID or how, how was that set up? Um, no, we were really fortunate that it was our plan all along to be riding Dandelion. Okay. Um, so if anything, we were kind of gifted extra time. I don't really love the wording of that just because the pandemic is so horrific and so many people have lost loved ones. Um but something that did come out of that was kind of a little bit of a removal of pressure because the entire world stopped. It wasn't just us stopping. Right. Um, so we were lucky to be in that position of we didn't lose out on all of these tours and these things we were expecting. We had kind of gradually slowed down on our own accord. Okay. So did you record Dandelion right before the pandemic started or how... We started writing Dandelion in March of 2020, like okay. the month the world shut down. Oh, wow. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then in April of 2021, we recorded it. Okay. So you recorded in LA, is that right? That's correct. So this is your sophomore album. It's the follow-up to This Is It, which um, you kind of called that more of a coming-of-age album. And then after that, you did the I'm Afraid I'm Not Angry EP in 2019. Dandelion is kind of 
labeled as a breakup album and you talk a lot about dissociating from your life, uh, but also at the same time, finding healing and beauty within yourself through all of these difficult moments. Would that be pretty accurate? Yeah, that's super accurate. I read another interview when This Is It came out and you you had said that you kind of thought that the Green Committee discovered your sound through that album. Do you still think that's true now that you've had dandelion come out do you feel like it's an evolution i think it's definitely an evolution because i don't necessarily think that statement is incorrect i just think that it makes sense that i thought that at the time and then here we are with a completely different sound in a way i do still feel like this is it is more like not accurate but just that at shows i feel like that's that's kind of our sound that's our thing and dandelion is actually us trying to branch out and in a way is more authentic to us and who we are, because I think it was created with us really shutting out any external noise that could have gone around it, any sort of expectation from management or the label. Um, and this is, it definitely was a result of pressure, but it, I think both get get their right to, to being ours, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, did you feel like, more of a sense of autonomy on creating this album then? For sure. I felt more prepared. I think this is, it was a really good example of what we didn't want to do. Not necessarily with the sound and the writing, but just with really looking inward and sticking around with the four of us versus seeking help from others. And it's not that we didn't because when it came time to work with a producer, we were super in a place of like, help us, show us, show us what we're missing. But we came to that on our own, whereas in This Is It, it was kind of pushed onto us. Yeah, and I know that it was just 10 days that you spent recording This Is It. Yeah, which is way, way too fast. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so was it more of like being kind of pigeonholed into something because you were a newer band at the time? In terms to like the time period to record or just the sound in general? In general, with that album. In general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't think anyone was like there were people that wanted us to work with other songwriters and I think that songwriter that we did work with on this is it what he showed us was how we needed to work together and being more accepting of one another but that wasn't what he was trying to do necessarily um it was just something that was an advantage of coming out of that experience and I think kind of a reminder of no, this is the four of us, and we shouldn't be pulled apart. Um, we need to do this together. And I think that really was beneficial for us, especially when it came time to write our next body of work. And I'm Afraid I'm Not Angry really was a result of being like, screw you all, we're going to do this on our own, like it needs to be the four of us, but obviously conveyed in a much more polite way. Sure. Um, but, it, but it was that like internal digging of of learning what we didn't want. Um, And you know, I mean, a lot of that pressure wasn't from other people. I also put it on myself. I was very influenced by all of that. And because it's scary, it's like you have, like, hands down really got us most of the, the rewards we had gotten up until that point. And, you know, every time you're creating a new record, you know that a certain amount of something needs to happen in order for you to stay on your label, in order for you to grow in venue size, in order for you to do X, Y, Z. So that that pressure existed without even anyone having to emphasize it, but it was emphasized as well. Sure. That makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that your work since This Is It has, to me, it seems more intentional. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I know you had like 50 or 60 ideas that you all had in the Dropbox that ended up condensing into the 10 songs that are on the album. Do you feel like the four of you were able to work together better in that space and and I I assume that maybe the pandemic didn't allow you to work together for some of that time too yeah that's actually I would say that's probably the reason I mean it's not the only reason why there were 50 or 60 ideas but because we couldn't actually physically work together for the first month or so we we kind of had to assign homework to ourselves and say like everyone needs to upload this amount of work into the Dropbox each week so that we're moving. Um, I hated working like that. I could not do it. It was so difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know Brandon and Pierce 
thrived doing that. I mean, it was so beneficial for them. Um, and that'll kind of, tr- that's going to carry over to our next writing process, I'm sure of, hey, let's all be in the mindset to write and everyone take some time and compile their ideas. And then let's get together. Um, and it definitely influenced a lot of what happened after that time. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe that helped you all figure out what your strengths and weaknesses were in terms of songwriting, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how long did this record end up taking to record? Um, gosh. So we had, we had some really bad luck leading into this record. So on our way to LA, we took COVID tests and Brandon got a false positive. Uh Uh-oh while we were in the van so we had stopped in Vegas so like what three or four hours outside of LA and he got the call and he was like guys I'm positive and everyone was like stop joking because at this point we're all vaccinated and he's a I mean as far as we know asymptomatic like he's like I feel completely fine his test had a little bit of uh blood on it from his nose and he was like should I redo this and the woman was like no it's fine turns out it wasn't fine and so for the next few days, we had to put everything on hold. And Brandon, I mean, ended up taking like five more COVID tests and all were negative Jeez. because he didn't have it. And it was a false positive. Um, but that like really disrupted, like I felt so bad for him. His mindset, you know, there's so much money on the line that goes into going to record an album and mm-hmm. driving to LA is like a 24 hour drive. And, and then you're spending money to be somewhere that where you're not even doing the work you want to be doing. So we had a lot of hiccups beforehand, but I think it made us really eager and grateful to be in the studio once we got there. So I think everyone was just on like hustle mode. Mm-hmm. I think it only took like seven days, but this was the first time we ever had pre-production. Oh. Our producer, Jen, really, really sat there with us and, and worked on pre-production. So I think that we didn't even realize that we were more prepared than we thought we had been because we I think we tried to get like 12 days or something like that and we didn't even need them but we had no idea that's awesome yeah yeah it worked I think, out. yeah pre-pro really it makes a huge difference I think that you know you don't even totally realize it until you get done tracking everything it's like oh that was way easier than I thought it was going to be yeah just because everything was set up by the time we get got there I mean it was like the amount of tracks that we needed and um, sort of implementing certain like sounds already before we had gotten there. So it was, it was very nice. We, we felt really, really lucky to have that this time around. That's great. You did an interview with The Pitch recently, and you said something about how I hope that whenever we do have a moment of su- success that our fans feel like they're entitled to feel that as well. And, you know, like I said before, um, I really admire how much you use your voice to help other fans feel seen and valued and important at your shows. Um, and, and I'm wondering, like, in terms of, well, I guess in terms of COVID, you know, what's happened over the past year, um, how has that changed the way you interact with your fans since you're not necessarily able to go out to see them and tour and play for them? I would say, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I'm happy that we had already built a connection with our fans over the internet because then we just got to maintain that and, and continue talking that way. I would say, obviously nothing brings us together more than when we're all together singing the same song and dancing together. Uh, I think that I really miss that. I, I'm sure our fans did too, but for me, it was, it was very difficult to not have that physical connection with them just because I am a physical person in general. You know, I'm, I'm a hugger. I love to get up in everyone's faces and, and be with them that way. But um, like I said, I'm grateful that we already had that relationship built through Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And what do you hope the fans can take away from Dandelion? I think it's, it's sort of the same as it always has been. And just that feeling of togetherness and connection and that you're not alone and that if you're feeling something, chances are someone else is feeling something too, and uh, you can connect over that. That's what I, I hope they feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they do. Um, I, I think that your music has a lot of timelessness to it. You know, you do have like a youthful sort of vibrancy, but it's also very anthemic, and it comes from such an authentic place that I think it just 
has this sort of enduring feel to it. So thank you for doing that, just being able to reach so many more people through that. Oh, thank you. That's like the best compliment ever. I think that's what everyone wants to hear about their music is, yeah, the timelessness and like, there's something scary about being a band at 16 and it's like, yeah, you know, your your fan base isn't going to be 16 forever. So I'm really fortunate that we've gotten to grow up with one another. And I, I hope that that continues to happen and that we continue to feel connected and reach people of all ages. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I think a lot of that is because of the way that you present yourself, just being open, being vulnerable. And and so I want to talk a little bit more about the mental health aspect of all of that, um, because you do you create a space, I think, for your fans to also be vulnerable right along with you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know that you were harassed at a show a few years ago, and so you made a point to tell your audience, like, if you don't feel safe, let us know, you know, which is is such a big deal because people don't, or maybe before didn't really think about that, you know, it's like, well, you're just at a show, you're on your own kind of thing. And and the fact that you as the artist are taking the time to be like, no, you're important, you're here, you spent your money to have a good time, you don't deserve to be treated like that. I guess, I don't, I don't even know if I have a question about that. I, I just wanted to say that I, I really thought that was a cool thing to do. But um, I guess just being vulnerable as an artist is something I've talked to people about and, and how that can be difficult, you know, because you are sharing these stories about yourself or something very close to you and you don't necessarily want to tell everybody everything, but you do want, you want to connect, you know? Um, yeah. Have you, have you been able to find like kind of the balance between, I, I guess, just not giving up too much of yourself? Um, gosh, well, I want to I want to go back really quick to what you mentioned about the the safety of our fan base, and I do want to credit um, our our fan Annika. She really helped me out in finding a way to do that um, through the text hotline, and um, I think I think working with her, it, it was kind of on her that she really wanted every venue in Kansas City to have that, and that was something we were pushing pre-pandemic before everything shut down and something will resume pushing. Um, but that was that was aligned with her views as well. And, and that's why I'm happy that I'm so vulnerable is because I can have an impact on my own, but it's so much greater when I have our entire fan base alongside with me and get to share in that with them. So I just, I want to applaud her real quick and our entire fan base really because they're so awesome. And I think when you create a culture of what's acceptable versus what's not acceptable that you bring in fans with similar values and morals. And I, I feel really proud watching that because I've seen strangers come to our shows who, who leave being friends with sort of those veteran fans that we've had around. And I just, I really, I adore that. And that's probably my favorite part about everything is just the community that we get to build. Um, But that does come from being vulnerable and and putting myself out there and I think that it's unfair to expect people to trust me if I'm not showing them my mistakes and my flaws alongside of my wins and so a lot of what I do is is to build that trust and and to say this is who I am a huge part of that is based around fear of being misunderstood um, which still happens I had something happen on Twitter where I had made a comment about my sexuality and it was taken as a joke. And therefore, you know, I can see how if it were taken as a joke, that it would look biphobic or homophobic. Um, But as a queer woman who's been in a relationship for five and a half years with another woman, I was like, you know, I'm not going down for that. And that's not what happened. So here, let me explain. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people heard me out. Not everyone did. There were plenty of people that you know, I had never interacted with before on the internet that just didn't care to have that conversation. But thankfully, I've been given the opportunity to cultivate that relationship with my fans to where when I do say something that's misunderstood, I have their backs um, and they have mine. And so it was really awesome to see some fans step in and be like, hey, you need to read into this further. That's that's not at all what's going on. Um, and because I did that and because I chose, it was me being vulnerable about my sexuality and saying like, 
hey, I've identified this way all my life, and I actually don't know if that's true. And I chose to have that conversation online because I knew that if I was feeling this way, that chances are someone else's. And it was me seeking education. And in the midst of it all getting attacked, I mean, it had to be like 150 to 200 people attacking me all at once, um, which is like the most overwhelming thing that I've had happen to me online. And my dad texted me and he's like, my love, like, why are you giving people this? Like, this is, this is your business. You don't have to share it. And I said, dad, I'm doing this because I know if I need it, someone else needs it. And I'm willing to be the example and to take take the hits if it means that both myself and someone else come out of this being more educated understanding a new part of ourselves and I had enough people I mean it was 10 to 20 maybe maybe more maybe less who came and thanked me for that and I'm like that's worth it if one person comes and says like I needed that then I'll totally take on the 150 people who are choosing to not see the full conversation Mm -hmm. um could I do that forever I don't know like there is a part of me that's like I do need to protect my mental health but I also don't ever want to cower I think I use myself as a vessel for something that's bigger than me and I think if I continue to do that that more good will come out of it than bad so I'm, I'm going to choose to continue going that way and if I hit a bump where it's like hey I just need some privacy I think again that because I've cultivated that relationship with our fan base that there'll be nothing but gracious and understanding as they have been I mean they're just awesome yeah and that's amazing that you have been able to cultivate a community like that you know we are in an industry where wellness is not prioritized it's it is more about like being popular and having the streaming numbers and you know whatever the case may be so when we go into venues and play shows and go through all this rigmarole it's we're just really not talking about the important things and and that's something that you you have really used your platform to to destigmatize all of that and make it okay to not be okay and to help people feel like they're not alone thank you i i appreciate that and like i said i'm not i'm not perfect by any means but yeah building trust through showing showing people what your flaws are mm-hmm. even if that's just out of fear for me it's just yeah fear of being misunderstood but there's such a gift that comes from that and I don't know, just, just kindness. I think it's just a Midwest kindness thing too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just being really fortunate of, you know, when you're 15 and given such a cool opportunity, like, God, why wouldn't I be grateful? Why wouldn't I want to connect with people? Why wouldn't I want to like wrap my arms around everyone? Just cause that's what's been given to me here through Kansas city. Artist Mentorship, which is uh, an innovative program for young songwriters. Yeah, so Artist Mentorship is another blessing that came to me out of the pandemic uh, because it was through there that there was a lot of virtual programming going on. So Artist Mentorship is a nonprofit in Kansas City that works with historically oppressed or historically underrepresented youth in Kansas City, but that's not where it stops. That's just where the heart of the project is. Um, it stretches its arms out to really the whole nation, especially when it comes to being virtually. So the virtual side of it, it's called the Rebel Song Academy Live. And that was a shift of needing to continue this work and continue to impact students through using Zoom. Um, And we had nationally recognized, globally recognized artists come on. And it was sort of an Ask Me Anything style questionnaire. We had acts like Kevin Morby, Hometown Hero, uh, Hippocampus, Beach Bunny, Steve Berlin of Los Lobos, the greeting committee was an act that was on it. Um, but that's work that we're doing to provide the love of music and songwriting 
to use that as a vessel for connection. We work with a certified art therapist, Sherry Jacobs, when it comes to our curriculum, because implementing ways to help the mental health crisis that's going on for youth is really important. And I think that's what really captured my attention on it was because I was that 14, 15 year old kid sitting in my room, isolating and using music as a, as a tool of therapy. And so I just wanted to sort of show others how effective that can be. My own brother has been a part of the program and he's someone who also struggles with mental health and to see him grow and his confidence um, and self-esteem just increase as he gets to be applauded and rewarded and uh, praised for being vulnerable is just so awesome. Um, That's all just the virtual side of everything. Now that the pandemic is sort of shedding or we're starting to get there, the actual Rebel Song Academy itself is a 12-week program that you start with nothing and you end up in a room with a critically acclaimed producer uh, getting to produce a full-fledged song that you've spent the 12 weeks writing. We go through everything and really break it down uh, through our curriculum and that is where that mental health aspect comes in because we're doing things that are to to sort of break down vulnerability and, and praise it in general. So we've got that 12-week program and then over the summer we did our ignition camp which is just the spark. If you've never picked up an instrument, if you're well-versed at an instrument, if your mom just dropped you off here because you needed something to do over the summer, come on by. And that's, that's five days consecutively that you're put into a group and you're working to write a song. And then we had a performance at the Kansas City Museum out on that lawn. And it was just, it was really awesome. And that's the part that my brother specifically participated in. And just seeing him glow was so worth it. And, and all of the other kids as well and getting to kind of walk through it it really brought me back to being 15 and performing open mic nights and just how nerve wracking it is. And I, I just, the bravery it takes is just insane, but seeing the outcome is so worth it. So right now artist mentorship is in the process of, um, we're community building. We're, you know, continuing to do outreach as well as gather financial equity because we want to give all the way we want to give this programming away for free always that's the goal is that it can be attainable to anyone between the ages of 12 to 18 no matter economic status or background um it's a our priority that it's a safe space and that is our goal is that it's a safe space mentored by other artists in the kansas city community area so it's not only affecting the youth in kansas city but it's also giving jobs to like your favorite musicians around town so it's it's really awesome work and i'm sure it's so rewarding to see the outcomes of what's happening you know like when when the kids are performing especially the bridge has been a small part of that program and and i've loved watching it grow you know from what it what it was and then when i heard that you and brandon were involved with it it was just like this is going to be a great you know it's just such a cool thing and especially to have more talented Kansas City musicians on board you know kind of mentoring these kids it's so cool it brings together such a sense of community as well and I think Mm -hmm. one of the goals of the program is to show everyone in Kansas City that you don't have to leave Kansas City to be a successful artist um Kansas City is like been on the verge of being like this up-and-coming art city for so long And it's like, we really want to solidify that because there's so much talent here Um, and so much willingness to collaborate is also what's awesome. And so just enforcing that with the students of, hey, their win is your win. Your win is their win. Like, let's Mm -hmm. all do this together. Let's just do what we can to make Kansas City proud and and show that these opportunities are here. You don't have to go to New York or L.A. to to become successful, whatever that means to you. Right. And again, you know, just cultivating this idea of community and collaboration instead of competing against one another or whatever I think that that's that's going to be huge for a lot of musicians who are coming up here in the scene in the next few Mm -hmm. years too so so yeah I I really appreciate the work that you all are doing over there thank you yeah I mean and the bridge has been so supportive of it one of our our biggest supporters for sure so we really appreciate that collaboration and getting to work so closely it's fun getting to do greeting committee stuff with the bridge and then yeah. put on a different hat and do artist mentorship stuff yeah absolutely so I think that's all I have uh, but I'm just gonna just ask if you had anything else you wanted to add before I sign us off 
I don't think so. Just thank you for all of this. It's been such an awesome conversation. I really appreciate like it's it's really cool when someone comes into the interview too. You have so much knowledge. I was like, whoa, that's cool <laughs> that you pay attention. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, I do my research, and I've been following <laughs> you all for a little while, too, so I really, really enjoy the music, and I hope I can come to the next show. I had to miss the Uptown show you all did, but was that the beginning of 2020 or the end of Yeah, right okay. before the world shut down. God, yeah, that seems like so long ago. I know. <laughs> so again, thank you so much, Addy Sartino, for being here. Uh, the Greeting Committee's new album is called Dandelion, and it is out via Harvest Records anywhere you stream music. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. And thanks again to Addie for being here and for the tracks you heard in this episode, all from the Greeting Committee's brand new album, Dandelion, via Harvest Records. In this order, you heard Make Out, How Long, and Ada. That's going to do it for this episode. Special thanks to Patrick Spray and Chris Mowry. Please listen and subscribe to the Center Cuts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. So